The Start On Demand. On demand. Rusty the therapy dog has died after a battle with cancer. Rusty helped so many people in this community, putting in countless hours over many years at various Winnipeg hospitals, primarily St. Boniface Hospital, but he helped out at so many wonderful institutions and touched the lives of so many people. So we will remember Rusty when we speak to his dad, George, and we will remember the animals who touched our lives through the years. Winnipeg Transit has amassed a cumulative surplus of $180 million over the last 10 years. But they haven't really used a lot of that cash. Grand Fork says no matter what, flooding season, probably going to be bad. And buses are cool! Seriously! I'm Brett McGarry, alongside Greg Mackling and Loren McNabb. We are Mackling, McGarry and McNabb. And this is the Wednesday, February 19th podcast for The Start. Hospital is a place none of us want to end up, but for those who have ended up at this particular hospital and had the pleasure of encountering this entity, sad news this morning. Yeah, Rusty the therapy dog retired last November from his post at the Everett Atrium, St. Boniface Hospital, and yesterday, a day after his 18th birthday, as uh, his papa, George Ames, would say, he crossed the Rainbow Bridge to the other side. So we're saying goodbye to Rusty the dog this morning. And uh, I guess we could read this from Rusty's Facebook page here. Sadly, sadly, Rusty passed away yesterday with his owner and companion, George, writing a Facebook post on his behalf. Hi, friends. It's me, Rusty. And up here in doggy heaven, I crossed over that famous rainbow bridge today, right after my birthday yesterday. My inoperable mouth cancer suddenly spread to my front leg and lungs, and it hit me harder than I expected. I couldn't eat or stand. My poor parents were in disbelief. They tried to help me as best they could, but the nice vet here in Arizona said there was no hope for me. But the painkillers worked great until it was time for me to go. So I'm up here looking down on all the friends that I made in my long career as a therapy dog, I do expect you all to be happy that I live such a long and enjoyable life. My wish and hope is that all of you will do me a favor. I would like you to follow my example and work diligently in your careers. Keep a positive attitude and always smile at other people. It worked for me. They will smile back at you. Trust me. I know what I'm talking about. Whenever you see a photo of me or even think about me, please remember our friendship. Plus, know that I am pulling for you to live a happy and honorable life. The legacy that I would like to leave is to inspire more people and their dogs to get involved with pet therapy volunteering. The demand is there, and the rewards are too. Rusty the dog wore glasses, mm. which did. is such a wonderful image. And I've got one of those T-shirts that was kind of fashioned, I guess, after the, the Obama uh, shirts. And uh, I wear it with pride. And I, do, do you guys know what kind of dog Rusty was? Because I've never seen a dog like that. No. And he had, he, I was thinking this morning about how, um, so I have no idea what kind of dog he was, but more that face. There's something about his face. Like when you put glasses on him, he was so, 
human. And I was thinking about how when he, even when he came in the studio, it felt like he was smiling at you. You know, some dogs just have that natural smile. So I think that was part of his charm. But I have no idea what type of dog he was other than just a really great one. And I remember covering a story with him when he first came into sort of the therapy world about 15 years ago. And he was at one of the shelters downtown and some of the clients there, people who lived on the streets would come in. And one of the guys remarked, he kept hugging Rusty and he talked about his eyes and how he loved his eyes. And I thought, oh, that's so cool because his eyes, there's no judgment in the dog's eyes. They're just loving you. And I thought for the homeless population and vulnerable people or anyone walking into a hospital or other, how good that must feel not to have anyone judging you, just loving you. Yeah, well, a lot of people don't realize that uh, in certain parts of the hospital, whether it's St. Boniface, other hospitals, in palliative care in particular, dogs are welcome. They welcome your pets because in the um, hospital world, they understand what a powerful influence animals can have on our well-being. And so uh, being a therapy dog was uh, obviously Rusty's calling, something that... Um, if you have a dog that has a certain demeanor, you might want to look at in terms of a, a pastime or a volunteering opportunity. If you go to the, the website, the St. Boniface Hospital, you can uh, search through there. If you'd like me to send you a link, shoot me an email and I'll send you a link and you can you can reach out if you think it's something you'd like to do. And as we speak, I, I was texting with Rusty's dad, if you can call him that this yes, morning, George, just to say sure. that we're sorry on behalf of CJOB for his loss. And he says, I'm ready to talk about Rusty anytime, particularly the legacy of therapy dogs and how they can help people going through difficult times. And I think that's tremendous that even on this day where he's woken up for the first time ever without his his companion at his side, he wants to make sure people remember the work that these dogs can do. I want to start this segment with a text message from Mike that we shared earlier this morning, but I don't know that our guest would have heard it. I had my encounter with Rusty in late May 2019. I had been visiting a good friend of mine at Grace Hospital, and after learning from him that he was not doing well with his cancer, I left shortly after. Dejected, sad, upset, and with tears at the ready, I walked off the elevator and immediately saw Rusty. I almost walked by, but he seemed to call out to me, offering a smile. I stopped and asked the owner if I might pet him. Not only pet him, but you can give him a treat, he replied. My worries and sadness evaporated. My tears receded, and I left 20 minutes later feeling so much better. Such was his power and love. Rest in peace, Rusty. That text message, Loren, coming from Mike. And of course, that's in response to the fact that we learned this morning that Rusty, the dog, uh, a dog who wore those glasses, he had those kind eyes, beautiful smile, spent years working in Winnipeg's hospital system. Well, he passed away yesterday after a bout with inoperable mouth cancer. And his father, as we like to refer to him, his companion, George Ames, joins us now. And George, first of all, just condolences on behalf of all of us who've been thinking about Rusty and the listeners who've been sharing so many wonderful stories about him. Thank you, Loren. George here, uh, Rusty's dad, by the way, Rusty's father. Um, very proud of Rusty. <clears throat> Still pretty raw, but um, we'll get it. We'll get through this. George, it's uh, Greg here, and uh, you know that uh, Rusty and I had a had a special friendship, and and uh, you and I become friends over the years. This has got to be so tough for you, but to realize the the gift that you and Rusty have given Manitobans over the years and 
to know that he's just so well loved has to be easing things just a tiny bit today. It, it does help, Greg. I um, I'm wearing one of Rusty's uh, t-shirts, and and I I know you have a Rusty t-shirt, and I think your muscles uh, look pretty good in in that shirt. I'm sure, and and I I hope many people will be wearing Rusty shirts this week in memory of him. Yeah, I uh, I got a rusty T-shirt too, and uh, you know it's funny. Uh, whenever I wear it, I sometimes wonder if people look at it and go, "What's that?" But more often than not, it's looks of recognition, it's looks of smiles. Often, I'll even see other people wearing the same shirt. And you have more muscles than Greg. Thank goodness. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I like where true. this is all going, but but uh, the focus of Rusty this morning and and who he was to this community, George. I'm curious at what point in Rusty's life did you realize that you should be sharing him with others? Where when did you decide? You know what? He needs to be a greeter for the world because he's got a special gift. Well, I think it started many years ago. Rusty had a very humble beginning came from a shelter background, and uh, I think uh, he got a break. Uh, first of all, he was adopted a few times, but was taken home by people who went to work all day alone and uh, and left them alone, and he chewed their shoes, so they gave up on him and brought him back. But he soon learned that that wasn't going to happen at his latest home, and he's been a great dog ever since. But he... he uh, has that, or had that beautiful face that quiet demeanor that people were drawn to. And uh, that goes back about 13 years ago. I think we started going to a few nursing homes. Then we were at Deer Lodge. We were out at the um, uh, that rehab uh, hospital out uh, in Fort Gary area. Uh, St. Uh, whatever it was. St. Amont, Anyways, George? Uh, not St. Amont, but... Um, where they used to have the uh, tuberculosis patients years ago. That was the old St. Uh, Riverview. I'm just, Riverview, thank you. You're welcome. I'm a blank there. No, no, no problem. But anyways, and then uh, then we were at St. Bonavist where we met uh, Greg Macklin uh, and his two young uh, premature babies that turned out just fine. Uh, we did a stint at uh, the Grace Hospital trying to help them get a dog program going. Uh, we were did a lot of work with um, the Fort, uh, not the Fort Gary campus, but the uh, Bannantyne U of M downtown campus, encouraging all those young medical science students to to study hard. And there's a lot of young doctors out there who claim that Rusty helped them get through their exams. So I always got a kick out of that. What kind of dog is Rusty? Rusty uh, was a special dog. He. Uh, like the rest of us, was a mixed breed. And I'm not going to ask you your mix, uh, Brett, but... Um, Irish-French, I think. I'm, I'm Irish. I think I'm a mixed bag of Irish and French. There you go. Not bad, probably. Um, Good-looking guy, according to some uh, women I know. I think you're kind of ha- <laughs> right. handsome. But anyways, great, too. Uh, Lauren's cute as well. <laughs> Rust, Rust, Rusty told me that one day. Well, she Rusty and I are both watch. redheads. That's why I think that's... That's it. Fiery, cute, and uh, always interesting. <laughs> but uh, Rusty came from an unknown background, and uh, maybe it was that humble beginning that made him uh, give out love. Well, maybe that that mystery is part of what makes him special, because I've never seen a dog like Rusty, and I think that's one of the things that drew so many people to him, because I, I've never seen such a big, fuzzy, just kind-looking, gentle dog. 
Yes, he uh, he was uh, special. We about probably 10, 12 years ago, we met another dog, looked exactly like Rusty, and the owner had adopted him from a shelter about the same time that Rusty, same age. And I met that fellow three or four years ago at St. Bonavis Hospital, and he uh, had said that Rusty's probable brother had just died of the same oral cancer that Rusty just died from. So but Rusty managed to live probably five years longer than his brother, and so it was a gift to have such a long life. George, Monday was a rough day for me personally because it was my mom's birthday and she would have been 69 years old. She only lived to be 51. So as it turns out, my mom and Rusty shared the same birthday. Very nice. Yeah, that that, that, that makes it uh, very special, even more special now. That uh, recognition from the Senate going to Ottawa a few years ago, was that the highlight of your and Rusty's travels together? Uh, it, it certainly was a highlight. Uh, some people say, did Rusty get Order of Canada? And I would say almost. <laughs> he uh, he was recognized for sure. Um, Pat Bovey, a uh, Manitoba senator, had seen Rusty's work in palliative care and in the front lobby and thought he deserved uh, special accommodation. So we uh, were very proud to go to Ottawa, my wife and I, and receive uh, that medal. George, before we let you go, June, uh, one of our listeners, June, was asking, she wants to make a donation in Rusty's name to a shelter and is curious to know where Rusty was adopted from. Well, Rusty had, uh, <laughs> he, he had been at the um, Humane Society shortly, um, but he was actually adopted through a shelter that uh, had an affiliation with the um, Humane Society, and that was Hilda Hebert's uh, shelter, which is now no longer so long ago, she had a, a shelter out in St. Anne, Manitoba, the town, and she would adopt dogs uh, and give them out to people. And as, as I said to people, Rusty was the best $75 we ever spent. It just covered his va- vaccinations. Uh, but um, to us, he was a gift. And uh, I would like to think that I could find another dog like Rusty and start all over again. Maybe we will. Well, George, uh, Rusty touched uh, so many lives in this community, in this province, and uh, we thank you for giving us all the opportunity to meet that special dog. Yes, thank you very much. Uh, His post on Facebook last night already had about 200 comments and 1,200 likes, so I'm very touched. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. Jeff Braun is here. Kelly Moore is here. Jeff Fortier is here. If you are just tuning in, sad news today that Rusty the dog, the therapy dog who put in countless hours at St. Boniface Hospital, among other wonderful institutions in this city, died yesterday in operable cancer. And we've shared the Facebook post to our 680 CJOB Instagram story if you want to read the eulogy from Rusty uh, in his own words. We're going to be speaking with Rusty's dad, George, at 845. But we're asking you to share stories about the animals who affected you, and we'll get stories from Kelly, Jeff, and Jeff in a moment. But we do want to share this text from June, who says, So sorry to hear that Rusty has passed away. He was a special spirit. I had a therapy dog named Jade, who was like Rusty. My Jade brought out the very best in people when we were at our visits. It got to the point that when we would walk down the hall, people would ask us to stop into their rooms. One volunteer 
Our volunteer time quickly went from three hours to four to five hours. Jade absolutely adored that job. When I put on my St. John's t-shirt, she couldn't wait to get out the door to go to work. Well done, our sweet friends. Signed, June. Kelly, I feel like, should Jeff Braun be asking the question, what kind of animals (laughs) affected you? Stega what now? (laughs) (laughs) That was a setup. Yeah. Yeah. That was too easy. Couch potatoes, Uh, one-two punch. No kidding. Dino? Yeah. Uh, No. Uh, no, Our our first family dog, though, was a lab border collie cross by the name of Morgan, and our kids called her Momo, and uh, we had her for 18 years. She was just an absolutely wonderful member of our family. I had just started doing play-by-play, so Momo was kind of the house protector. My wife would have this. She'd have all the doors strapped together with ropes, but I'll tell you what, when you knocked on the other side of that door, it sounded like there was a a 500-pound German shepherd. Fiercely protective, but also uh, the number one pick for road hockey games because when the ball went wide of the net, Morgan would be the first one to get it. Well done. The trick was getting the ball back. Yeah, no kidding. (laughs) A genuine retriever, huh? No kidding. She was just awesome. Yeah. Forte? Um, I would say, well, both family dogs. Uh, The the first one, Rags. My parents got him when I was really, really little kid. He's just a mutt. And... uh, so when we first got him, I was really, really small, and he used to knock me over, steal my pajamas, <laughs> and chase him over the house, and I'd go, I hate this dog, I hate this dog. Well, very shortly after that, I loved him, he was my best friend, and yeah, we uh, played together. And then you have Molly, the current dog, and she's just uh, such a sweetheart. Um, anytime you're feeling down, you just go up to her, she gives you a kiss, and everything's all good. Rags? Rags, yeah. Yeah, he used to steal my pajamas, and I'd have to chase him all around the house. Or if I blew a raspberry at him going, he would just bark and go right after me. So, yeah, a lot of fun. Do I dare ask you, Jeff Brown? Uh, We had a poodle when I was a kid that I hated. (laughs) (laughs) It bit me on Christmas, and then we gave it away after a bit of neighborhood kid. This is supposed to be about animals that you liked. I'm getting to it. Okay. I'm just doing the timeline here. We had this little black poodle that was just the worst, and it was one of... (laughs) Four or five poodles across my lifetime that have bitten me. Poodles really <laughs> don't like me. Yeah, poodles hate me. What's the deal with that? Poodles hate me. I, when I when I was in college, I just like rented a room in this lady's basement, and she had two poodles, and they bit me all the time. <laughs> Lord. <laughs> oh, oh, I feel like goodness. I have incentive to go get a poodle like, right now. <laughs> but my girlfriend has this cocker spaniel Luna that I just adore, and uh, uh, Luna came to stay with me for a week while she was out of town, and it was just it was awesome. I, my parents had a cocker spaniel named Missy. And uh, when I was a little kid, I, I did not like that dog. But that's because she didn't like me or my sister nope. because we stole Missy's thunder, right? Oh, she yeah, was yeah. The, the queen oh, of the castle okay. and uh, ruled with an iron fist. And then we came along and and upset the natural order of things. So I don't remember all that well. I think she uh, she died when I was four or five years old. But uh, I know my parents loved that dog. And she had a thing for spaghetti. Apparently, my, whenever my whenever my parents had spaghetti, uh, Missy had to have some spaghetti. So, don't yeah. feed your animals people food. I guess is the moral of that story. Oh, like Lady and the Tramp. Dogs love, <laughs> dogs love spaghetti. <laughs> we had this dog name. I'll be the, I'll be the first to admit I'm not a huge animal person. And I do think part of it's when you grow up on the farm, the dogs 
and the pets, like it's more of a purpose. The cats are in the barn to catch the mice. The dogs are there to warn you of anyone coming in, you know, onto your property, those kinds of things. So we had a lot of pets come and go over the years. We had this one dog named Candy who in Minnedosa, the owners couldn't keep him because he was a big cross between a collie and a German shepherd. And he just became too big for their house and their yard. And so they asked if we'd take this dog. And for the first, I bet you it was six months, he would disappear and run back to their house like almost on a regular daily basis because he missed that family and those kids so much. So he'd run six kilometers into town or five kilometers going to look for them. Just miss them so much. And then he just became part of our family to the point where he would know my mom and our lane was like I don't know, 600 meters, 700 meters long, a really long lane. And he would race down the lane and sense when my mom's car was turning onto the lane and greet her like every single day. And so when he passed, that's we had a lot of dogs over the years. But you ask anyone in my family, Candy's going to be the one who loved all the families he was with. And so, yeah, the loyalty that's shown by pets is something pretty special. It sure is. I I can't help but think of uh, my buddy who grew up in Minnedosa. He was my dad's dog. She was my dad's dog for a long time. And uh, usually dogs go to the country to retire. Well, Jackie, as she was known before she came to Winnipeg, and I started dating a Jackie, <laughs> who then became Wrigley, <laughs> came to Winnipeg to retire with me. And it's interesting you were talking about your 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 dog and how she was sort of jealous of the newcomers. Well, when Brendan and Alexander mm. came along, Wrigley became their number one protector. She yeah. would sleep in front of their door. She would sleep right in between their cribs, and and she was just wonderful with uh, the kids. And I I commented that the day that uh, we had to say goodbye to Wrigley, I I think I cried more that day than I did yeah. the day my mom died, and I don't know why that is, but uh, those those. Furry creatures have such a way of, of worming their way into our hearts and touching us in, in just a, a different part of our heart, I think, that it's just indescribable. So I'm thinking about uh, rigs today. Can well, I sh- and just as I was going to say, I, I didn't know Rusty the same way you did, Greg, but uh, for the St. Boniface radio thons mm-hmm. that I've done, he was a rock star. Yeah. On those days, Rusty owned the Everett Atrium. It was just incredible to see how he drew people. And I think absorbed other people's pain kind of thing. You almost wonder what he took on over the years, right? It's hard to be that empathetic person, but he's this dog that's like taking in everybody else's uh, sadness. I just want to share this text from Juliana who says, when we shared the news of Rusty's passing at 615 while you were talking, she says, her five-year-old Boston Terrier Vernon came over to me, sat, sat beside me on the bed and... That's where the phone was playing your station. It seemed like he was listening to you. He laid down on my hip and put his head on my stomach while you were talking. How do they Dogs. know? Dogs. How do they, they know? They just do. That Better than cats. Let us know about the animals. <laughs> who, come on now. Just started a war. Denny sent us an amazing picture yes, of a cat. I'm kidding, Denny. Well, I love you and your cat. Right now, we got to start the hour on the subject of transit. Yeah, I think there seemed to be plenty of surprise when the city of Winnipeg presented a recap of its finances. That year, after, pardon me, a year after raising transit fares 25 cents per rider in 2018, Winnipeg Transit had a run 
and had a surplus situation for the year 2019. In fact, the transit service took in $12 million more than had been anticipated. That led to plenty of discussion of where that money should go. Well, thanks to the work of Tom Broadbeck at the Winnipeg Free Press, we now know that the city of Winnipeg's transit service has actually operated with the surplus every year for the past decade. Some may consider the number very impressive. The cumulative total, over $180 million. Councillor Scott Gillingham is chairman of the City of Winnipeg's Finance Committee, and he joins us now. Good morning, Councillor Gillingham. Good morning, Loren, Brett, and Greg. Good Great to, be with to ha- you. Yeah, it's our pleasure to have you here. So uh, the most basic of all questions uh, for you, has all that money been reinvested back into the transit system? Well, um, a good portion of that money has been reinvested in the transit system. There's still some that sits as retained earnings, and so not all of it has been allocated. But over the past several years, yes, those those surpluses are reallocated back into transit. For example, in 2019, uh, those funds were used to uh, purchase bus shields, electric bus study, heated bus shelter, uh, many other capital improvements as well. So when you kind of revealed this last week to talk about the idea that we had these surpluses and raised your own questions, what were some of the concerns that you had about this money and whether or not it was being put back into the right spots? Because we all like to think if we make money, say, from water, it goes back into water. You make money from parking, it goes back into parking or roads. But that's not always the case with how money is allocated at City Hall. Well, in in recent years, all of the transit surpluses have remained within transit to fund capital projects. And one of the advantages of using those surpluses within transit is it means transit does not have to use debt in some cases to to fund, as I said, um, things like bus shields. It's been used to uh, purchase uh, buses as well. What uh, all all the money is there? All, we, it's all there. It's easy. It's available in our detailed financial statements. Those are those are audited statements annually by independently audited, and they meet our public sector accounting principles. What is makes it more difficult to see is they're not all rolled up into one into one report or one page. So what I've called for is the Vaster Transit Department and our and our finance department to be prepared to kind of put all of those allocations uh, in, in one report so that council and the public can more more easily see where all the the, the surpluses are going. There's an assertion here uh, in uh, an article by Tom Broadbeck uh, from the the 12th of February that suggests only 25.7 per, or pardon me 25.7 million of that 180 million has actually been been put put back into retained earnings. Can you want to clarify that if you can, Scott? Yeah. So so that's one of the reasons I've asked for the uh, the the report to uh, to be brought forward because. You know, um, the reporter was looking at a 10-year uh, time span, so I've asked the department to be prepared to come back and show uh, council and the public, uh, you know, the last 10 years of, of retained earnings or re- surpluses, I should say. There have been years uh, previous where it's up to council ultimately how those how those surpluses are invested or, or where the where those surpluses are spent. There have been years previous where the money did not stay within transit. And I know, you know, in recent years, the money has stayed within transit so that it can be reinvested in transit. And I think what's important is that as we look forward, uh, our transit department is developing a, 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 a transit master plan. And that master plan is ultimately going to lead to better 
uh, improve uh, better transit service for the citizens of Winnipeg. And that transit master plan is going to need significant investment to implement. So it's my view that all those surpluses and more will be needed uh, in the coming years to be reinvested in transit to implement the transit master plan. The surplus is probably a tough pill to swallow for uh, Amalgamated Transit Union Local 1505. They've been saying that surpluses should be used to improve the service and increase uh, capacity for a long time now. Well, that's what the Transit Master Plan really is ultimately all about, and that's why in 2018, uh, Council called on the Transit Department to develop a Transit Master Plan. The draft report of that plan has has been made public. I know the transit went out to our our community, did public consultations, and I've only heard positive response from uh, from the draft report of that transit master plan. And so it is going to take significant investment in the future years to implement that plan when it's ultimately completed. But you're calling for the idea that we make the money that is earned through transit, the, the finances more easier to read. Should we not also be adding to that ask that the money, A, uh, is always spent on transit and then B, is spent, period, rather than sitting there accumulating over the years? Why not make sure we're putting that money to use every single year? Yeah, well, well that's, you know, ultimately, ultimately it's council's, you know, council has the, the authority to make the determination of where those those funds are spent. It's it's my view that again, given that we're going to have a, a a significant master plan that's going to take uh, investment, you know, I believe it should stay within transit. When it comes to the reporting, what I'd like our you know I'm asking our transit uh, department to do is to come back, roll all of those surpluses and the allocations of the surpluses up into one report and present it to council so council can easy, much easier see where, where the surpluses have been invested in, in, in the recent years. Councillor Scott Gillingham, Chairman of the City of Winnipeg's Finance Committee, joining us live on CJOB. Thank you for this. Thank you. Can I just give a quick uh, word of uh, encouragement to our curling teams? We've got uh, two teams from Manitoba, Team Goche and Team Zacharias, that are, that are Team Canada right now, and they're representing Team Canada in championships in Russia. And our men are from Cinnabon Memorial Curling Club in St. James. They're on top of the men's standings at 6-1. and one. And Team Zacharias from Elton is sitting in second place. And the women's standings at 5-1. and one. So we wish uh, our world junior team good luck. All right. Well, hey, thank you for that. Impressive uh, recall <laughs> of the standings, too. So well done. The city of Grand Forks isn't waiting for the waters to start rising before sounding the alarm on a possible flood this spring. As you mentioned, uh, Brad Julian was talking about it yesterday, and so was Jeff in the news run. Grand Forks has declared a state of emergency. The mayor signing the paperwork yesterday so that federal funding in that city can start flowing as soon as the spring flood hits. We know Grand Forks has already seen record-breaking precipitation over the past few months, with forecasters predicting... The area of the Red River Basin in Grand Forks will be subjected to one of the five worst floods in its history. But what does that actually mean? Greg Gust is a meteorologist with the National Weather Service in North Dakota and joins us this morning. Good morning, Greg. Good morning. How are you doing this morning? We're good. When we hear five worst floods in its history, we're not that good because we know much of the water in Grand Forks ends up in Manitoba. So give us some context here first. What are we talking about in terms of the precipitation you've seen and how that compares to some of those worst years? Well, uh, as you already mentioned coming into here, one of the wettest falls on record. It was, in fact, uh, for most of the U.S. side of the border anyway, the Red River Basin, if you look at all the uh, areas that make that up down here, um, 
and and looking across that from September 1st on till now, we've had the wettest period on record uh, right up to this date, just about. And uh, so so the September October precipitation, of course, really set the stage for that, and that just got everything so- soaking wet. And then as we went into freeze up, a lot of that water was still parked on the landscape, if you will, and uh, still trying to make its ways into ditches and streams. And, and of course, some of it had gotten into the red and some of it had moved right down the river into Winnipeg and beyond. But there's a whole lot of it that was still basically, like I said, frozen on the landscape. And then we went into snow. So uh, the November, December into early January time frame, we actually picked up a winter's worth of snow down here. I know that it wasn't quite as much uh, on the Manitoba side of the border, but uh, we picked up a full winter's worth before we got through mid-January. We haven't had much since, so that's a good thing. But, uh, again, just the fact that the ground uh, is totally saturated and we have a winter's worth of snow and a bit more than that, actually, on top of it, you know, it's just primed and ready to go. So, Greg, I know Again. sometimes when we head south uh, to Grand Forks and to Fargo, you know, 120, 180 miles so from Winnipeg, it's amazing how different things can look because uh, I'm under the impression and have been in the past that, that quite often you get a, a almost like a winter melt in that part uh, of, of the world for you folks. I'm guessing that hasn't happened this year. Well, it hasn't been really awfully cold you know we had our we were below normal temperatures uh, through the fall period mostly but uh we've been neck and neck and very near normal um you know we've had our well right now we're in the same cold snap as, as you're enjoying and we'll be coming out of that again but as you've noticed from december into now these cold snaps have been very short and we've had some fairly warm temperatures and we've gotten near the thaw point maybe even a, a degree or two above a couple of times already this winter, but it it doesn't remove the water. So at this point in the calendar, anytime you get thawing and you get a little bit of that melting going on, the actual water isn't disappearing. It's not flowing off the landscape. It's not moving out. In fact, um, as we dig into our snowpack here uh, near the office, um, we check it on a regular basis, and really the water that, that has been building up all winter is still there. It's just the snowpack is compressing but the water layer is, 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 it's the same amount of water. It's just a compressed layer. So it's becoming more and more like an iceberg, if you will, as time goes on. So uh, it's not really until you get into that uh, mid to late March and you start warming up and you actually consistently are warming up so that the snowpack uh, doesn't get so, so, so darn cold afterward um, that you actually start to move some of that water. So it's it's going to be a while yet. We're just basically laying snow on top of the same snow that was here uh, in late November, and at some point it's going to actually start to move. Greg, if we if things stay the conditions, it hasn't gone anywhere. Right, <laughs> it's sticking there. It's it, you mentioned it being like an iceberg. It's kind of waiting to move. So say conditions stay the same. Say we don't have any more snow from now until the spring melt. What are we talking about for comparison's sake? Are we talking about a flood like 2009, 1997? Is there a date or a year you can give us that would give us some context? Sure. So, so when I look at, uh, at the probabilities we have out there, the 50% point on our probability curve is actually pretty the closest we have to what we would call near-normal conditions. So if we had near-normal precipitation and temperatures from now through the end of April, uh, going into May, we would see 
at uh, coming up through Grand Forks, we'd be just shy of the 49-foot number, which, again, that, that was a record back in 1979 when that was set. Um, since then, we've topped it three times. So um, the that's something that has been, uh, again, something that we've hit more regularly. Uh, that would put a 53-foot number uh, at the city of Pembina, which is very close to what happened in 2009 there. Um, less So if that's normal precipitation, normal temperatures. Now, we actually, since mid-January on, we've been very close to normal for pre- precipitation. Granted, we haven't had much, but we don't typically get much during that late January, early February time. Um, if we had nothing from now through the thaw, um, you know, throughout April, can you imagine a year where March and April you're not getting any precipitation? Anyway, if we had that, uh, then we'd still have a flood, but we'd be in the moderate, maybe the low end of major stage going up the Red River because, again, there's just that much water to move. Um, and so with that, you'd be looking still, believe it or not, still at Pemina, we'd be looking at a level, oh, less than the 2011, so but still around 51 feet, so it'd still be a major flood stage in there. I'm just trying to see what the actual, where that puts us in the rankings for that year. And the computer is just sitting there spinning slowly. But anyway, so it's not, it would still produce a flood, which is an amazing thing that we would still, uh, that's similar to a 1996 level, if, if anybody there is keeping track of floods over the years. So again, not, uh, not the, it would barely, that would still be a top 10 flood. Believe it or not. Yeah, 96. Not. Ni- sorry to interrupt you, Greg. 96 in these parts would be the same as 1979, uh, almost exactly. So uh, 1979 on the list of historic floods already in these parts. Yeah, and again, that's just because we have so much water in the system. Um, now, that said, uh, if if we get really nasty, and, and you mentioned 1979, that's one of the years... Uh, 66, 69, 79, that actually produced really bad scenarios if we were to have that type of spring unfold now, because those were very wet. There was a lot of rain in 79 that added to the flood and that. So we, we clearly don't want to see that type of year. Uh, a little more snow, you know, we'll put up with, but we don't want to get into uh, not only more snow, but then start getting rain on top of things as we go into the thaw. Don't have to leave it there, Greg, but we appreciate your time. It sounds like uh, the waters will rise no matter what. It just depends on how bad. Greg Gust, meteorologist with the National Weather Service. Thanks, Greg. You're welcome. Bye-bye. We have been having plenty of discussion about the future of transit in our city. The mayor has declared this the year of transit on the streets of Winnipeg. Buses are the only choice for public transit. Many people in Winnipeg complain that Buses aren't sexy enough to attract ridership. You only take the bus if you need to. And in Winnipeg, we build more transit buses than anywhere else in North America. Here's the question in my mind. Are buses, in fact, the answer to the public transportation dilemma facing most major cities in North America? The book is Better Buses, Better Cities, How to Plan, Run, and Win the Fight for Effective Transit. Stephen Higashide is the author. He joins us now. Good morning, Stephen. Good morning. So subways, commercial rail, and LRT are all seen as transit options, which will attract ridership. Are, are buses the answer after all? 
Well, look, buses can be a great way for people to get around. And, you know, you don't want to focus on a transportation technology because it's perceived as sexier or flashier. What really matters is transit service that is fast, frequent, and that provides a dignified experience, you know, somewhere to wait, a safe place to cross the street to get to it. Those are the fundamental things that make transit attractive to people, and they can be accomplished through bus service. So the question is, you know, are leaders in Winnipeg going in that direction? You use three key words that come up often uh, when it comes to riders or the reasons why people are not transit users at the moment. You said fast, frequent, and dignified. And you mentioned the idea that technology can help support these. I think we think that it has to be a train with a digital board or a, some sort of platform or an LRT system for it to be reliable. How can technology make a difference for buses and make them fast, frequent, and a dignified experience? Well, the kinds of information technology interventions that you mentioned in relation to LRT, the same can happen for buses. There can be great customer information at stops or at your smartphone. And then there are a lot of uh, street design tools that need to be implemented in order to make bus trips fast. Uh, There is the system of diamond lanes that exists in Winnipeg. You know, perhaps there are some places to expand that, either uh, geographically or expand the hours that some of those are open. And then I think it's, um, you know, we can talk about technology, but there's actually a lot that can be done through simple wayfinding and map design to make transit an intuitive experience. Just to give one example, as an outsider uh, looking at the Winnipeg transit map, it's actually a bit confusing to understand, well, which are the frequent routes that are coming at least every 10 or 15 minutes, and which are the routes that I actually have to plan my life around the schedule. Uh, If those were in different colors, as they are in some cities, it makes it uh, an intuitive experience, and, you know, it's not necessarily a technological investment. Well, Stephen, we've made the comment in this city, uh, skip the dishes. Uh, one of the food, uh, one of the largest food delivery services in the world is based in Winnipeg. And we always joke that we can track our pizza, our sushi on our phones, but we can't track a bus in real time. And that's super frustrating to a lot of folks. It is really frustrating. You know, as someone who may be standing there, uh, on the side of the road, maybe in the cold waiting for the bus, you really want to understand uh, what's happening. And you need to know whether you're going to be waiting five minutes or 15 minutes or 25 minutes. And all the technology is there in order to implement that. And that technology proves helpful for city and transit agency planners as well. The same kinds of real-time vehicle tracking that helps riders understand what's going on on the street. You can also use that in the planning process and understand where you might need to put new uh, bus-only lanes or where uh, buses are getting hung up in traffic and other types of interventions might be warranted. Give us some examples then, Stephen, if you would, because I think, you know, you're talking about the idea that the technology is there, at least from our mayor's perspective, his political will is there, but there seems to be something holding us back. So what other cities can you point to that have actually made these kinds of reforms and put buses first and where it's actually working? Sure. Um, 
So I want to preface this by saying, so I've done a lot of research looking at transit investments in the U.S. And generally speaking, most cities in Canada are actually doing a better job than U.S. cities. But there are good examples of America, of uh, U.S. cities working to improve bus service. One of the examples I write about is Houston, where in 2015, they reorganized the bus network from scratch. They essentially said, if we were going to redraw the system uh, from scratch, where would we put the routes knowing that employment centers have changed and the demographics have changed? And they really emphasized the importance of frequent service, of routes that come at least every 15 minutes, sometimes more often than that. Those provide a kind of service where you can just show up and go rather than having to you know, plan your life around the schedule. Um, in New York City and San Francisco and Seattle, there's been uh, really increased investment in or increased interest in getting beyond the bus-only lane and actually having bus-only streets. So in 14th Street uh, right here in New York, we recently uh, essentially banned private vehicles on this really important thoroughfare while allowing uh, trucks, emergency vehicles, uh, and buses. And it's remarkably improved service while also making the area just a more pleasant place to be without impacting traffic on the side streets. So there are some reasons to get uh, a little more ambitious about how we're thinking about the limited street space that we have. Hey, thanks for listening to the Start Podcast. We are available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now and never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate the show, tell us what you think, and hey, even tell a friend about the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Greg is at GMACWPG. That's G-M-A-C-K-W-P-G. I am at Brett McGarry, B-R-E-T-T-M-E-G-A-R-R-Y. And Loren on Twitter is at McNab on Global and on Instagram at McNab on CJOB. Talk soon.